You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Hey, my name is Sean Seguin. I'm one of the pastors here at Refuge. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. Um, this is our online service week. Next week we will be back in person as was mentioned in the announcements, but um, thank you for, for joining us. Whether this is your first time checking us out online or, or you've been with us in, in every service along the way, uh, we just appreciate you taking the time to do that. If you've never filled out a connection card before, please go ahead and, and do that now. You can find that uh, in, the, in the link in the description of the video. So uh, please do that. Right now we are in uh, this sermon series in the book of Titus, and we've been working through uh, already three weeks. This is the fourth week in Titus. Titus is a book, it was a letter written from Paul uh, to a man named Titus, uh, who was a pastor over, over the church in Crete, and uh, a little island. Um, and back in the first century. And so this letter was written to ex- in, encourage Titus as a pastor in ways to care for the community and get them on mission, get them thinking about caring for and loving their community and being transformed to transform this, this, this community, this island. And so um, this is where we've been. We talked about uh, eldership and, and different requirements for that and, and the things in, that happen in uh, chapter one, we kind of Got into all that, but uh, this week we're to be diving into chapter two. And so, uh, before we do, I just would like to uh, just start off with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your love. I pray that today we would all be transformed by your word, um, and that we would be shaped by your word and by the gospel. That we would be on mission for you here in our area. In Jesus' name, amen. Did you know that 57% of Americans uh, ask how they can find more meaning in their life at least once a month? At least once a month. 57% of Americans ask how they can find more meaning in their life at least once a month. And then there's like hundreds of books and seminars and all these things on finding purpose or meaning in your life. And we've all probably asked that question, like, what am I here for? What's my purpose? We all want to feel like we're making a difference on this earth, like, like our life isn't just some kind of blip on, on uh, the, the historical timeline, but, but that there's some kind of eternal impact that we are a part of, that, we're, that, that, it's, not just, that it's not just for nothing. We all desire to have meaning in the things that we do. And, and whether we seek that in, in certain roles or positions or, uh, or paychecks or, or people or whatever, uh, we all are seeking some sort of meaning. Now, God may have a specific position for you, but that is not where you're going to find your meaning. God may, uh, may have a specific partner for you, but that is not where you'll find your meaning. God may have a specific paycheck for you, but that is not where you will find your meaning. Yes, God cares about your choices. Uh, he has calling for your life, but what he really desires for you is that, that whether you have your dream job or your nightmare job, whether, uh, whether you are married or not, uh, and, and whether you make a lot of money or very little, no matter what, that you would use that situation to proclaim Christ in all that you say and all that you do. 
And so today, the, the main point of this message, if, if I give you a message in a tweet, every now and then I do that, the message in a tweet is this, speak and live for Christ because you were saved for Christ. Speak and live for Christ because you were saved for Christ. And this is actually my three points. This is how I'm breaking down uh, our passage in Titus today, Titus 2. My three points are this, to speak for Christ, live for Christ, and saved for Christ. Speak for Christ, live for Christ, and saved for Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at verses 1 and 15 together, actually, in this first point, uh, to be able to uh, kind of grab something that I, I think... Uh, Titus 2 is bookended with the, these, this idea of speaking for Christ. So we're going to dive into that now. Speak for Christ. Verse 1. But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. And then again in verse 15, this idea of proclamation. He says this. Proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. There's this idea of proclamation that Paul wants to encourage. And so he starts off and ends with proclaim these things. And then he tells them what to proclaim. We're going to get into all that. But this idea that he would say to proclaim these things, this encouragement and this rebuke that, that is consistent with sound teaching. He's, first of all, he's, he starts off with this like, but you, you're going to do something different. Different than who? different than those teachers from chapter one. There were teachers that were running around Crete that were dishonest, that were, trying to, uh, that were trying to gain money by their teachings, and they were ruining households. So they were doing this thing, and, and, he, and Paul is saying, no, you, Titus, are going to do different. You're going to set a different example in the way that you proclaim things. Your life and your proclamation is going to be different. And this proclamation is going to be, it's, it's tied in verse 15 to encouragement and rebuke to do it with authority, to do it with authority. This, this idea is that, that he shouldn't be afraid to speak with boldness. But what's most important here in these, in these two verses is that it is consistent with sound teaching. It does need to be bold. It needs to be authoritative. He needs to not be afraid or timid and hold back because maybe he's young or whatever, maybe uh, how, whatever he might be afraid of. But, he, but the most important thing is that it is consistent with sound teaching. That, that sound teaching is like healthy doctrine. Basically, it's the gospel. It needs to be consistent with gospel, the gospel message. And I love this because he's not just saying, hey, go and say exactly this, this, and this. He doesn't want him to just parrot himself. He doesn't, Paul doesn't want Titus just to be a parrot of him. But, but he's saying, go and, and take the gospel that's been poured into you, that's been invested into you, and go and live it and preach it, rebuke and encourage based on this gospel meaning, this gospel truth. And while Paul is telling Titus, a pastor of a church, to do this, I think we are all called to do this. We're all called to do this. We're all called to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ, to encourage and to rebuke. We all have people in our lives that care about our opinions. We all have influence in someone's life. And, and these are the people that need us to speak up And when we know that a clearer understanding of the gospel would be for their good and for God's glory. 
And, and there's this book uh, by Jeff Vanderstelt uh, named, uh, called Gospel Fluency. I, I thought it, this was such a great book. I read it a few years back, and, uh, and I just thought this was so appropriate for what we're talking now, uh, teaching, cor- uh, correcting, encouraging, all this in line with, with good teaching or the, with the gospel. And Vanderstelt says this in, in Gospel Fluency. He, he discusses, or he discusses the importance of being able to interpret the world around us, our own desires, our own fears, um, our own successes and failures and all these things through the lens of the gospel. And the more we do this, the more gospel fluent we become. And I believe this is what Paul is getting at when he's, he's talking about uh, proclaiming things consistent with healthy teaching. When you're fluent in the gospel, you'll find yourself living it out much, much more naturally and recognizing when you need to repent much more often. You'll, you'll recognize these things quicker. Something as, as simple as a harsh word uh, to my two-year-old can turn into a moment where I realize that I need to repent because my, ch- uh, because my child is not my own. And, and that the way that I interacted with, the, with them misrepresented the heart of their heavenly father. Or when I catch myself attempting to earn someone's approval. I, I, can't, I can repent because I can immediately recognize that my worth is not determined by anybody's approval, but it is fully determined by the one who died on the cross for me. If someone dying for you doesn't show you that they love you and care for you and that you have their approval and you know, like that, that you have that you are valuable to them, if that is not enough, then what is? Someone dying for you, let alone the creator of heaven and earth going to through this, uh, this, these great depths just to be with you, to, to draw you in and to make you something new so that you might glorify him. This is the beauty of, of, of being gospel fluent, being able to recognize I don't need that person's approval uh, for me to, find, to be satisfied. I can represent Christ in, in all that I do, whether it's parenting or, or it's my job at, at work, you know? And as we become, <clears throat> as we become more uh, fluent in the gospel, it, it enables us to help others grow in it as well. I love what Vanderstoep writes in the book. He says this: gospel fluency doesn't com- uh, does not come about only in a classroom or during Sunday morning gatherings. In other words, people don't become fluent through classes or by passively listening to preaching or even by reading a book. They become fluent through immersion in a gospel-speaking culture. A little bit later on, he says this, you become fluent through immersion in a gospel-seeking community and through ongoing practice. You have to know it, regularly hear it, and practice proclaiming it. Gospel fluency begins in you, gets worked out within community, and is expressed to a world that needs to hear about Jesus. The idea of being gospel fluent, he's, he's, he's uh, comparing it to learning a new language. I took Spanish uh, in high school, and I know that I went to the classes, and I know that I learned a lot. I know that even now I could sit down and, and get a Spanish dictionary and, 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 and learn back and forth and, and even maybe translate something that someone sends me, and it, I could work through it and translate it and make sense of it. But I am not span- <laughs> fluent in Spanish, 
really doing that, you need to be immersed in a community of Spanish speakers. And this is the idea uh, that he is communicating here. He's saying, you need to be immersed in a community of gospel-centered people, people who truly have allowed the gospel to influence and impact them. Titus, Paul believes that Titus is a gospel-fluent person that he can send into a community and help them create gospel fluency as well. And so he says, proclaim. He's talking about proclaiming things consistent with sound teaching, with the gospel. When he talks about encouraging and correcting, all of this is based in being a person who can, who can uh, proclaim the gospel. If you'd like to grow in this, then I would first encourage you to make sure you are rooted in a gospel-centered community. That means that if, if you're watching this and you don't attend a church, find one that truly preaches the gospel. Obviously, we hope that you would uh, actually come and visit us if you're in the Austin area, uh, but I would encourage you to also go read that book, Gospel Fluency by Jeff Vanderstelt. And even check out the Gospel Coalition. They have a whole uh, a website uh, with different courses on gospel fluency, so go through the gospel fluency courses. Um, Speaking the gospel, living the gospel, and receiving the gospel uh, were three, three points I actually considered for this whole sermon. Because this whole sermon, this idea of uh, speak, uh, speaking for Christ, living for Christ, and, and yeah, this being saved by Christ, uh, or being saved for Christ, that these things are very much tied into gospel fluency, receiving, uh, being, being included in this community and being changed so that you begin to speak and you begin to live out this stuff. And so even though I didn't actually use those three points, um, it, it, this, whole, this whole sermon is, is really rooted in this idea of, of gospel fluency, really getting it. So first of, Paul, first of all, Paul is telling Titus, and, and I believe this applies to us as well, speak for Christ. Speak up, speak for Christ. When you see your brother or sister struggling, when you see your brother or sister do well, encourage them or rebuke them, but with a gospel-centered focus. But secondly, Paul is also is about to lay out the idea that we are all called to, uh, to live for Christ, no matter where we are in life. Live for Christ, verses two through 10. Live for Christ. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, and sound in faith, love, and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure workers at home, kind, and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything to, bad to say about us. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. First of all, no, God does not believe, uh, God is not saying, Paul is not saying, Paul does not believe that, that women belong in the kitchen functioning as subservient housewives. No, that's not what this is talking about. And secondly, no, God is not okay with any human owning any other human. 
Paul is abundantly clear in other passages that there is neither slave nor free, male nor female, Jew or Gentile when we are all in Christ. Paul turns uh, common first century oppressive household codes of, uh, between slaves and, and masters and these kinds of things. He turns them around so that oppressor and slave relationships basically look like a normal employer-employee relationship. And husbands are, are, are making sacrifices to love their wives and reveal their dignity. Titus has traveled with Paul. And, and he knows uh, how he handles all of these issues. And he has this fuller picture uh, than what we're getting just right here in this small passage. Um, so we aren't getting like new information all of a sudden, finding out that women and slaves have less dignity or value than free men. That is not what's happening here. And yet still, this passage uh, is a struggle to preach because of the evils of racism and sexism, of slavery and the oppression of women throughout history. And those topics deserve discussion. And in fact, we will, we will be getting into a sermon series on biblical justice after this series. So we're going to be working through some of this, uh, where we'll be able to cover some of that, uh, that from texts that actually deal with some of those issues. But for now, I, I really don't want our initial gut response to what he says about women and slaves to cause us to miss the point of this text, the actual point of this text. I could get into the differences between uh, an agrarian society that highly valued a woman's work at home because uh, without that, the, the whole society would fall apart. And, and the difference between that and a, the modern era where a housewife often has become a, a picture of female oppression. I could get into the difference between the racist and oppressive forms of slavery in the transatlantic slave trade and indentured servitude that was the most common form of slavery in Crete in the first century. I could get into all that, and I want to get into all that, but in reality, that is not the point of this text, and, and I desire to preach what the text is dealing with. If you have any questions about any of these things, please feel free to email me or Josh, and we would love to talk with you about that. Uh, I look forward to sharing more in the Justice series, uh, but for now, I really want to dig into what Paul's trying to say. I want to spend that time really diving into what Paul is saying here. It should be known at the very least, though, here that Paul actually gives dignity to young and old, male and female, slave and free, simply by addressing each of them and letting them know that they, too, have a calling on their lives. And so how they live matters. No matter where they are in society, no matter how they function in society, their life can be a display of Christ on this earth. And Paul's actual goal, which is too quickly lost in the initial gut response of some of this, is trying to teach every person in whatever situation that they are to reveal different aspects of the gospel through their interactions in society. And I would like to look uh, very briefly at each of, uh, each of the people that Paul wants Titus to address. So first of all, he talks about older men. He says he's calling older men to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, and sound in faith, hope, and endurance, and puts, uh, in a, and, and puts him in a place of continued responsibility. 
The gospel doesn't leave room for people to just uh, give up on growing more spiritually mature just because a person has, has grown older. Retiring doesn't mean that we stop pursuing Jesus. Gospel transformation is not only a young man's game. Paul knows the temptations for these, these Cretans, these, uh, these Cretan men, to revert back to their old ways simply because they're tired and they feel like they have less responsibilities. But living in this way will only help them to better steward all, of, all that they have and all those in their care. There's a reality that by laying out these, these boundaries for these older men and, and this encouragement to be worthy of respect and sound in faith, all these things, and, uh, and in endurance even, thinking about continuing, running this race, don't, don't finish poorly, finish well that no matter where you are in life, Paul is saying that, that it's not over. You can still reflect the goodness of God to this earth around you. Paul continues with older women by saying, in the same way, in the same way, talking to women as, as men. And he doesn't want to let them off the hook either. Just because their kids are all grown doesn't mean their job is done. And in fact, he calls them to continue making disciples and care for younger women teaching them to live out the gospel in their current place in society. Paul sees the beauty of, of, of the, the discipleship relationship that, that, man, if the kids are out of the house, it's time to start making disciples. Old and young, or old women, older women and older men, it's time to start making disciples. If your kids are grown and out of the house, it's, it, your, your work for Christ is not over. You have meaning and you have value and you have purpose for what you're to do uh, when you recognize the gospel calling on your life. And by calling younger women to come home in an agrarian society is essentially to call those women to begin to cultivate future citizens that will shape the future of Crete. Paul deeply values discipleship, and that takes place between a mother and her children in a way so much, uh, so deep, much deeper than I think many uh, discipleship relationships that I've been involved in. The way that my mother cared for me growing up, the amount of time she spent uh, kissing my wounds and, and holding me in her arms and sharing the gospel with me and sharing scripture with me, the way that my mom nurtured me, these are things that are valuable to Paul. And he's saying you have meaning there in that moment, whether it's that newborn baby as you sing her or him to sleep or, or it's it, it, he or she is, is a high school teenager just frustrated with you. In all of these moments, these are areas of discipleship and those moments are meaningful. You have purpose in that moment. And um, Paul doesn't actually give much instruction then for young men, except to be self-controlled. That's what, that's what he's told. He tells them, be self-controlled, but then he tells Titus to live out the gospel as a young man himself. Setting an example of good works, integrity, and dignity. So, so Paul is saying, look, live it out in front of them. Yes, we want them to be self-controlled. Like they are, they are, they're wilding out, they're wilding out, right? But we, we, and so encourage them to be self-controlled, but live out that example of what it means to, to be a gospel-centered, gospel-fluent person in this society. 
help them to see what, what to work towards. And lastly, calling slaves uh, to submit is only the beginning of what he says. We can get caught up in that, that, that little phrase. Sure, he, he talks about don't steal and don't talk back, which actually uh, means to be hostile and argumentative. But most important is that he calls them to be a demonstration of faithfulness. There's this, uh, there's this beauty in the fact that these servants are able to, to be a demonstration of faithfulness, to demonstrate something to the household around them, to the, to the father and to the mother and to the children. They can be a dis- demonstration of faithfulness in, the, in this moment. And I think it's important for us to catch that, that, that it's, it's not just that, but they're, they're, they're able to, that they might, he also says that they may adorn the teaching of God, our Savior, in everything. And so that's where these, uh, these servants are able to, to focus. And so they're able to gain meaning, even in when the rest of society may look at them and say, you have no value, you have no meaning in the work that you do, and the work that you do brings shame on you and your household or your family. He's able to say, no, there's meaning in what I do. This may sound insane, but for Paul to be able to say this to him, but Paul himself made himself a servant to all, a slave to all. He calls himself a slave of Christ, a slave of righteousness, a slave to all. He was willing to be beaten, stoned, imprisoned, shipwrecked, and and all because even as a free man, he understood that his life was not his own. And so as he tells servants, as he tells them, be faithful, be a display of faithfulness. He's saying, he's saying to these servants, he's saying, look, Christ was the greatest servant of all. Christ was the one who truly served others and you get to be a display of that servanthood. And Paul even desired to be a display of that. So let your life no matter what stage you're in, be a picture of Christ who who serves and rules well, who lives for others, who cares for the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, who lifts up the lowly, who dies for his bride, and who, who reconciles all things. This is the God that we serve, and this is who we are to reflect in our current situation, whatever that is. No matter how difficult, no matter how meaningless it may feel to you or how worthless it looks to the society around you, let your position in society be a picture of the gospel to those around you and especially to those in the same position as you. Man, because your life is, is not your own. We belong to Jesus which is really, really leads to my third point. We're to speak for Christ and to live for Christ, but finally, this is all because we were saved for Christ. Saved for Christ. Verses 11 through 14. 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in, our, in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope and uh, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Here we are hit with the purpose of all this discussion of proclaiming, encouraging, rebuking, living all this stuff out in a particular way, here in these four verses, we see all of, that all of this uh, has to do with the fact that we weren't just saved from something. We weren't just saved from hell and from our sinfulness. We were saved for someone. We are his. We're saved from hell, thank God. And we're, we're called to live holy lives, thank God. But this isn't about us being morally upright so that we can feel better about ourselves. This is about something so much greater, so much more meaningful. Our lives get to be the places where a, a broken world sees the Lordship of Jesus. Until Jesus returns, the kingdoms of this world will rage and justice will never truly fully exist. There will always be oppression on this earth in areas where rulers other than Christ exist. But thankfully, we get to show uh, this world what it looks like when Christ reigns in our hearts and within our community. In his death and his resurrection, he redeemed us, not just for, his, for our own sake, but he also desired to cleanse us for his own possession. When we begin to see it like this, we, we no longer look at good works as our way of earning God's favor, but as our way of joyfully displaying the beauty of our God. This is why Jesus gave himself for us. This makes me think of... Uh, the way our family does, uh, we have these family rules. What do I mean by that? We have, we have rules that we expect our children to follow, but we tell them like, hey, not every, every family cares about these things. And so we would say this is our family rule. One of those rules, for example, is that we do not exclude siblings. We do not exclude siblings. If you are at a park and you're playing with friends and your sibling is there and they want to play, you find a way to include them. If you need to change the game in order to include them, you will do that because we do not exclude siblings. And so you can't just partner up with this group of kids and say, sorry, they don't want to hang out with you. No, you're going to, you're going to say, no. I've got to make a way for them to be included. Let's find a way to change this game so that they can be included. This is one of our family rules. Other parents might not require it, right? Like, that's fine. Um, we don't think that we're better than other parents because we have this rule. But for us, we have a particular value uh, for the way we treat one another, and we hope to instill that in our children. It's intentional for us. It doesn't matter where you go. If your siblings are there, you're going to need to follow this rule, even if other kids don't have to. And in doing this, our kids become a display of the Seguin household. As you live differently, in light of gospel values, you will become a display of the household of Christ. As you live differently, in light of gospel values, you will become a display of the household of Christ. Jesus gave up his life for us in the midst of a dark and broken world, and it's time to live for him. In the midst of this, this, 
sin and death. It's time to live like we are free and to show the world how powerful our king really is, to say that when Jesus reigns, this is how the world can look. That when they enter in, they visit our community, when they come to a community group or they come to our church gathering and they see us interacting with one another and they see the way we live our lives, that they would go, there's something different about them because it seems like there's someone different in charge of them. You know, there's like a different uh, value system going on. And it's because we have Jesus as Lord of our hearts and our lives. If you're seeking greater meaning in your life, what you really need is to, uh, to speak and live for Christ because you were saved for him. That is the whole purpose of our lives. You can do this in, in any context, in any situation. You will find just as much meaning in that place as you would anywhere else if your goal is simply to glorify God. That's where our meaning and our worth really come from. So whether you're rich or you're poor, powerful, powerless, remember that Christ's death on the cross called you to live as a representative of him on earth. Man, we gotta stop seeking the, the, the next paycheck and the next, uh, you know, the, 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 the next position, the next person that we think is gonna fulfill us. If we're seeking meaning in those things, we will, we will always be dissatisfied. But when we find satisfaction and meaning in glorifying God in our current situation, we will have greater sense of meaning and purpose in our lives all the time. I'm, I'm gonna close with this. This, this is actually just a, an application to take with you throughout the week to think about. As you consider your current situation, what is one or two things you could do to use it to display the gospel in your life? As you consider your cons current situation, what is one or two things you could do to use it to display the gospel in your life? Just begin thinking about, uh, especially during the time of worship directly following uh, this sermon, Begin to ask yourself, what are, what are a couple things I could begin to do in, in my current situation that would bring glory to God, that would reflect Jesus even more in my life? I'm gonna, and close, I'm gonna close with prayer, then we'll go to a time of worship and response, and then after that, I'll come back for the benediction. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, transforming us. Thank you for saving us for yourself, for giving us meaning and purpose to live for you, God, to speak for you. Thank you for calling us uh, to be your hands and your feet here on this earth. Thank you for calling us to be a community that reflects the lordship of Jesus to the world around us. I pray that we would become a gospel-fluent community and that anyone who enters would, would, find, uh, would, would be able to discover that, the beauty of the values that, that are found within the gospel, to be encouraged and to be corrected at times, to, to, be, uh, to be lifted up and, and, move, and pushed forward to loving Jesus more and more and ultimately find, really finding that meaning that they've been seeking this whole time. Thank you, God, for your love, for your mercy, and for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith.